Uh, okay. Welcome everyone. Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, Rabbi Silber is going to be uh, teaching this springsman on the Nazir. So, yeah, if you're you know learning um, Dafyomi right now, then you know this will give you some good background. And yeah, I'm looking forward. Thank you. Okay, should I begin? Absolutely, yes. Okay, great. Okay, so yes, so we'll be um, studying uh, about the Nazir. Exactly how to translate Nazir. I don't know if there is a good translation of the word Nazir. I'll get to later on what Nazir might mean. Uh, this class, uh, the idea is the class will meet, I believe it's six or seven times, something like that. Um, that's the first half of that's before up to Pesach. And we'll focus on the the biblical Nazarite will be the focus of the first uh, set of sessions. And then after Pesach, there'll be an additional it's either six or seven sessions about the Nazarite that emerges from the Mishnah to some extent from the Gemara, uh, which is quite different. And as was just mentioned, um, yeah, the uh, those doing the Dafyomi are studying the tractate of Nazir, which itself is interesting that there is an entire tractate devoted to the, to the Nazir. That's a broader question, and perhaps in the study of Mishnah, it's part of the Rifka Rosenwein Mishnah project that we're very involved in now, really uh, trying to bring Mishnah to a, a study of Mishnah to a broader audience, both in terms of study of uh, individual Mishnayot and then sort of meta questions that emerge from the study of Mishnah, which are quite fascinating. So that's the plan, to start with the biblical Nazarite and then to move to the Nazarite of the, of, of the Mishnah. So the biblical Nazarite, there's one chapter in the Torah, which is devoted to the Nazarite, to the Nazir. And that's the sixth chapter of the book of Bamidbar. It's in the book of Bamidbar, chapter six. It's not mentioned in any other place. It's not mentioned in the book of Shemot which has a whole set of laws. It's not mentioned in any of the uh, laws of the book of Devarim, where you might expect it. And it's e not mentioned either in the book of Vayikra, but it finds its, its home in chapter six of Bamidbar, which is a strange place for it actually. And um, so I want to begin by discussing the biblical setting for the laws of the Nazarite, and then to get into chapter six, we won't finish it all in this first session, but. And then once we get uh, through that, we'll take a look at some people who were in the Bible who are described as Nazarites. Of course, the most famous being Shimshon, obviously, but there are a couple, couple of others as well. So chapter six of Bamidbar. So what is the context for the Nazir? Um, the Nazir, and we'll get later on to the definition of the word Nazir. I'll pause from time to time, people can speak up, you can unmute yourself, questions, comments, et cetera, as well, or send the chat to, uh, right? So send the chat and we, and we will, uh, we will uh, take the questions. Um, so the context of Bamidbar in general, I would say the first 10 chapters of the book of Bamidbar, the context of Bamidbar in general, of the first 10 chapters, is the setting up of the camp that travels through the desert. In effect, the, the Israel, which is consists of 12 tribes, 
as they travel through the desert. Uh, the Torah, in a very painstaking way, uh, describes where each tribe is. There were a total of 12 tribes. Actually, there were 13 tribes. In the Torah, there are always 12, even though there are 13. So there's always one tribe that's not included for whatever reason. So the way they travel in the desert is they travel in, in four camps, north, south, east, and west. And each camp consists of three tribes. And each set of three tribes has a leading tribe. And the Torah details this in the beginning of the book of Amid, by the way they are to travel, who the leading tribe of each group is. So that's 12 tribes. I say 12 because the tribe of Yosef, is, there's no tribe of Joseph, and Joseph is two tribes, Menashe and Ephraim. So really there were 12 sons of Jacob. So there should be 13 tribes. There are always 12. And so the missing tribe is the tribe of Levi. Levi does not camp in any of these four groups, but rather the tribe of Levi camps closer to the center of the camp. The center of the camp, as we travel through the desert, is the Mishkan. That's the sanctuary, the Mishkan, description of the Mishkan, the command to build the Mishkan, the instructions, the building of the Mishkan occupies uh, 10 or 12 chapters in the book of Shemot. It's the end of the book of Shemot. The book of Ayikra is dedicated largely to what goes on in the Mishkan, what kind of ritual service takes place there, etc. Laws relating to the Mishkan, who may enter, who may not enter, etc. So in the center, you have the Mishkan, but around the Mishkan, there are, different, uh, there are different groups there. And the tribe of Levi stands in effect in between the 12 tribes and the Mishkan. And the tribe of Levi is kind of a buffer in between the tribes and the Mishkan. The tribe of Levi, it's interesting, one can see it as they're sort of excluded from, from the larger community in a certain sense. And the same is true when they enter the land, the tribe of Levi does not have any land. So and that's a different conversation. Why, what does that mean? Why is that so, etc.? And in the book of Bamidbar, which begins with the counting of the tribes, the Torah goes out of its way to emphasize that the tribe of Levi is counted separately. The book of Numbers, as it's known in English, because there are two census which take place in the book of Bamidbar, the first generation in the beginning of the book, the second generation in chapter 26, book of Numbers, but in each case, the Torah emphasizes that the tribe of Levi is counted separately. My point here is that there is a very distinct, the Torah is very clear. When you travel through the desert, it's very clear that everybody has their place. Each tribe is in a very particular place. And in fact, the book of, of, of Bamidbar, remarkably, the last chapter of the book of Bamidbar ends with a discussion about whether it's permissible for tribes to, uh, to intermarry. It's very an interesting question. And the Torah is concerned about that because uh, the story of Tzulavchad's daughters and the tribe of Menashe complained that if they marry somebody from a different tribe, that the land which they inherited uh, will pass over to the other tribe. And the, the tribe of Menashe is very concerned about that. So you see in the book of Bamidbar, it's interesting, there's a general community, and then there are tribes. And each tribe has its own census. And each tribe has its own place. Then you have the, the, the Levium. 
and they have their place, which is closer, it's sort of in between the 12 tribes and the Mishkan. And then within Shevet Levi, you have the priestly caste, Kohanim, who actually function largely inside the, uh, inside the, the Mishkan, they work in the Mishkan. And there are people that are permitted to enter and not permitted to enter, and Torah goes out of its way to emphasize that there are people that are ritually impure who are sent away from the Mishkan, sent away from the camp, or sometimes perhaps all three camps, the way the Talmud understands it, there's sort of three camps. There's the highest level, there's the camp of the priests, and the second level, the camps of the Levium, and the third level, the camps of Israel. And very, people with various impurities are expelled from one, two, or three camps. That's the Talmudic understanding. And it does say in the Torah that those who are ritually impure should be expelled from the camp. Very beginning of chapter five. So people with various impurities, most of which are described in the book of Ayikra, are expelled from the camp. So in other words, the larger program over here, at least as we travel through the desert, is that everybody has their place. Everybody has their place. If you're a, uh, a fellow from the tribe of Zavulun, that's where you are, you're with the tribe of Zavulun. If you are, you know, a woman from the tribe of Usher, you're a woman from the tribe of Usher. That's who you are. And now, the uh, book of Bamidbar, after, and, and this, this, this uh, emphasis on having a particular place, which runs through the first 10 chapters of the book. And even as I pointed out before, it's even a theme in the book of Bamidbar generally, um, the relationship of one tribe and the next. Yes, it's one nation, but it's also 12 tribes. Um, and what's interesting is that in the book of Bamidbar, there are two, so call them called legal sections that appear within the first 10 chapters. And there's a third one as well. But the two that I'm speaking of, which are one after the other, are chapter five and chapter six. So chapter five, the chapter immediately preceding the Nazir, we're not gonna deal with this chapter, I'll mention it, is the chapter that deals with the Sota. That's the woman whose husband suspects her of, uh, of, uh, of having an affair with, with, with a particular person is in the Torah jealous of her, and he can then haul her off to the temple to undergo a kind of trial by ordeal of sorts. Uh, there's no evidence one way or the other. Um, and uh, so we can take her to the Kohen, she drinks these waters and have it in God's name, etc. this whole ritual. And then it will be decided on the basis of what happens to her, whether in fact she's innocent or guilty. That's the Sota, that's the proverbial Sota. And there is a tractate in the Talmud that is Masechet Sota. Uh, in fact, it comes right after Masechet Nazir. In the Talmud, the Mishnayot of Nazir and Sota are one after the other, but in reverse order. First you have the Nazir, that's a Mishnah discussion, and then you have the Sota. But the two are side by side. In a certain way, one, we'll get to this later, one can see them as being in a, in a funny kind of way related to each other. I'll get back to that later. But that's someone who has, one might say, is accused of being in the wrong place in a certain sense. So, uh, and then is she guilty? Is she not guilty, et cetera? 
Um, it's interesting that when one studies the Mishnah and the tractate Sota, it's a very good example of here, the, the rabbinic reinterpretation of the Torah is very striking. It's true of Nazir as well. So there's the Sota of chapter five, and then there's the Nazir of chapter six. And Rashi, I believe, uh, brings the famous comment that the Nazir, the Nazirite, kol Sota so the Gemara says, when you see the, the difficulties of a Sota and, and the situation that the Sota finds herself, and presumably it came about through something happened. So when one sees this, one should, uh, one takes its caution and whoever sees such a thing, Yazir and should, um, should uh, distance oneself from, from wine. One of the prohibitions of the Nazarite is to drink wine intoxicating beverage. So those kinds of things can get you in trouble. In modern parlance, we say alcohol and drugs, but it's the same kind of idea um, to avoid those kinds of things. Now, I mention all this by way of introduction because the, the way the Torah describes the Sota in chapter six, amongst other things, the Sota, and we'll discuss this at some length, um, the Sota says that, the very beginning, we'll come back to these things, of course. Chapter six, the second verse. So it's interesting that this verse, which is the beginning verse of the chapter, there's a man and woman, the word is a strange word. Uh, let's say pronounce. They say explicitly utter, okay, possibly. Who pronounced the vow of the Nazarite to set oneself apart. That's the translation you have before you. So lahazir, the simple meaning of lahazir is to set oneself apart, to separate. Here it's interesting that the Torah, which generally speaking speaks to the men and uses masculine language. Here goes out of its way to say that the Nazarite can be either man or woman. Now, when we get to the Mishnah, we'll discuss how many female Nazarites there were. That's a very good question. There are some actually, but typically they're men. But the Torah goes out of its way, man or woman, who will who, who utters the vow of the Nazarite. So the Nazarite is a Nazarite vow. That's also very important. We'll get to these things later. And now the Torah says, what does this entail? So if you look at the next verses, let's scroll down to the next verses. First of all, the Nazarite, there are prohibitions upon the Nazarite. The first prohibition that's mentioned in the Torah is the prohibition to drink wine. Here the word sheikhar, question what sheikhar means, is they translate any other intoxicant. The Talmud has a different understanding. It's also kind of wine, stronger wine, weaker wine, wine or grape products. That's the first prohibition. And the next verse says from the, the peel of the grape, the seeds of the grape, that's the next verse. You scroll down. So keep going, let's scroll down. Now, now, that next verse, verse number five. So one thing is the prohibition to eat grapes, grape products or wine. And then in verse number five, we have another prohibition. Call you may neden, probably the most well-known. Call you may neden Israel, tar lo rosho. So we have two things. Until the, until, until the completion of their term as Nazarite, the hair of their head is left to grow untrimmed. In the beginning of the verse, no razor shall touch their head. 
So the prohibition is to cut your hair, to get a haircut. And on top of that, there seems to be a positive command. Gadel peras arosho, let your hair grow. Para, para means wild. Poru is wild. Let your hair grow wild. Don't trim it. So the, Naz the Nazir has uncut hair. So that's the second thing. And, and it's forbidden to, to cut hair. That's the second prohibition. And the third prohibition in verse number six, Ko yemei haziro Hashem, al nefesh yavo. The third prohibition is all the days of the Nazarite, he is not permitted, he or she is not permitted to come into any contact with the dead. Contact with the dead, nefesh made with a dead person, makes one ritually impure. And the Mishnah will have a lot to say about that, but this is what it says in the Torah. And then the Torah spells it out. We are people, verse number seven is very interesting. Verse number seven is an interesting verse for us. It says, for parents, mother, father, brother, sister, he may not become impure to them even after they've died. It means he can't go to their funeral, even for his parents, his brother and sister. For Nazar Elohav al Roshel, Nazar is a crown. For the, for the, for the crown, here they don't translate, for, for their God is upon their head. No, the crown, the crown, Nazar Elohav, Nazar is a crown. The crown of their Lord is upon their head. Now, and the last verse we'll look at now for the moment is verse number eight. All the days of the Nazarite, the Nazarite is a part or holy unto God. Okay, that's the first part of this chapter. Eight verses that describe what the prohibitions or the, one might say the mitzvah of the Nazarite is. So the mitzvah is, Gadel Peras Arosho, let his hair grow. I say his, it's his or hers. So their hair can grow, must grow untrimmed, uncut, literally wild. And the first prohibition is about what the Nazarite may not eat, grapes, grape products, wine, etc. And finally, um, to uh, not to come into contact with any uh, anyone that's died. Um, yeah, and not to cut your hair. That's, those are the three prohibitions. Now, when you have three prohibitions, so this raises, first of all, this reminds us of a particular person. Whom does this remind us of? I mean, without getting to every specific detail, but there's one thing that's very striking. Let's talk about the third, which is not coming into contact with the dead. So what is the rule? Are, are people from, permitted to come into contact with the dead or not? Yes, but a Kohen can't. Right. So people are permitted to come in contact with the dead, but the Kohen may not come into contact with the dead. All with, with any dead person or with some dead people? The Shiva, you know, his seven right. closest. Right. So the literally the seven closest relatives, how to get to seven is a good question, but right. Immediate family. The Kohen is permitted to become Tameh to the immediate family. If a family member dies, whatever brother, sister, parents, or whatever, then the Kohen 
is permitted to go to the funeral, and the Talmud has a dispute whether the Kohen is permitted to go to the funeral or whether the Kohen has to go to the funeral. That's a dispute, but it's certainly minimally permitted. So the Nazir is, is, is Nazir can't go to anybody's funeral, not even for parents, right? But there is one person actually who's similar to the Nazir, and the only Kohen one Gada. such person. That is the, the high priest. Gada, right. The high priest is not permitted to become Tameh to anybody. So the rule of the Nazir and the rule of the high priest are parallel as far as defiling oneself becoming Tameh. The Kohen Gadol may never become Tameh to anyone, not even parents, not even the immediate family members. The same is true of the Nazir. It's interesting, actually, when we get to the Mishnah, very much looking forward to the Mishnah. It uh, opens up a whole new world, the study of Mishnah. And um, there is a chapter, actually, in the tractate of Nazir called, called Kohen Gadol. The, the Gemara raises a whole bunch of hypotheticals. Let's say the Kohen Gadol and the Nazir walk, walking, walking on a path together. The Gemara has all kinds of hypotheticals. Then you have the Nazir and the Kohen Gadol, and they come across a, a corpse on the road. Now, a corpse on the road, and we'll deal with this in some detail when we get to the Mishnah, it's so far off, but there is one dead person that the Nazir and the Kohen Gadol are actually committed to become Tameh, and actually obligated. It's what the Talmud calls a mate mitzvah. It's not found in the Torah, but mate mitzvah means a person, you find a body, and the body's lying in the middle of the street or someplace in the field, there's nobody to bury this person. So then the, the Talmud understands that even a high priest or, the, or a Nazir has an obligation to respect the body and to bury the body, even though in doing so, they will become Tameh. The Talmud discusses the question. The chapter is, if these two guys are walking together, the high priest and the Nazi are walking together, and they come across a dead body, which of the two should do the burial? That's a dispute, a dispute in the Mishnah, actually. But my point is not, in other words, the point is, you see in the Mishnah already that they're linking the high priest with the, with, with the Nazir. The question, which, which, which Kedush is, is, is such that having a choice between the two, he shouldn't do it and the other fellow should do it. That's a dispute in the Mishnah. But you see that the fact that the Gemara creates such a case, that the Gemara already understands that the Nazir and the Kohen Gadol have something in common. In other words, my point here, my first point of interest is this, that what we're talking about, as I said before, the context is everybody's got a place. Maybe you're in Shevet Zavulun, maybe you're in Shevet Naftali, who knows which tribe you're in. There's a particular place where you dwell in the desert, very specific place. And the particular, if you become Tameh, the particular places you can't go. But this Nazir, if we draw the parallel to the high priest, you wake up one morning and you say to yourself, some, someone wakes up well, one morning from the tribe of Zebulun and she says to herself, you know something, I'd like to be the high priest. I'd like to be the high priest. And the Torah seems to say, that's fine. You can actually attain the status of the high priest. It's very striking. With and this is a very important point with one big caveat in chapter six of the book of Bamidbar. We're focusing on chapter six. The stories are different, but there's one big caveat 
in chapter six, which, which is a very important point. And that is, this chapter is what, 20, was it 21 verses? It has, well, there are 24 verses, but uh, 27 verses, but the first 21 are about the nausea. Only eight of them, eight out of 21 verses, describe the prohibitions of the Nazir. The rest of the chapter actually describes what happens, firstly, if somehow the Nazarite condition is, in, is inadvertently interrupted. It can be inadvertently interrupted in the next verse if the Nazir comes in contact with a, with a corpse. In that instance, the Nazarite becomes ritually impure due to the contact with the corpse, then there's a procedure that the Nazarite must go through, including bringing sacrifices, shaving the head, etc., and you start all over again. And then at the end of the, the several verses at the end of the Nazir uh, uh, exposition is about what happens when the Nazarite completes the vow. There's a long discussion in the Chumash, long explanation, what is the procedure for ending the Nazarite vow, after which you, you may drink wine? So my point here is that most of the Torah's description of the Nazarite is about how you complete the vow. So I want to emphasize this, that for, for, from the Torah's perspective, you become a Nazir. You may wake up one morning and say to yourself, I want to be a Nazarite. I want to be the high priest. I know I'm a, you know, a woman from the tribe of Zavulun, but I want to be the high priest. As a Torah, you could be the high priest on one condition, and that is temporarily. This is a very important point. The Nazarite of the Torah is a temporary status. You're not a Nazir forever. This is a big theme in the Mishnah in Tractate Nazir, but this is what's in the Chumash. Okay. Now, I mentioned that there are three prohibitions that the Nazarite uh, imposed upon the Nazarite, may not cut her hair, may not drink wine, wine products, et cetera, grapes, and may not come in contact with, 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 with the dead. So we drew a parallel, obvious parallel to the high priest because the Torah goes out of its way, same as the high priest, not even to the immediate relatives. But there are two other prohibitions. One is to let the hair grow wild, and the other one is not to drink great, great products or, or wine. What about the high priest? What about the high priest? Do these prohibitions apply to the high priest or not? Here we come to a very interesting point, not just about the Nazarite, but about the study of, um, study of the Bible in general. Very important point in that is, Sometimes things are connected because they're identical or quite similar. And sometimes things are connected because they're exactly opposite of each other. But if they're exactly opposite of each other, they're also connected. And let me make the point, let's, let's start with the uh, cutting of the hair um, or letting the hair grow wild. What does the Torah say about the priest, not just the high priest, but any priest in terms of letting their hair grow wild? So I'll read you a verse. This verse is found after the story of Nadav and Avi in the book of Vayikra. This is found in Vayikra, was it chapter 10? Um, if I can find this over here. Um, this is in chapter 10. It is in chapter 10. 
verse number, verse number eight. So God spoke to Aaron. Listen to this. You may not drink wine in Shechar, the same intoxicating beverage, maybe it's wine. So you are forbidden to drink wine, intoxicants. There it says, when you enter the tent of meeting, the, the Mishkan, that you may not die. So the priest who's doing, certainly is doing the service, maybe even entering into the temple, is not permitted to drink wine. Then the Torah continues. Um, so that's, 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 that's the verse about the wine. Now let's find the verse. What about, about letting your hair grow? Let's see if we can find that. Um, where is that verse about letting hair grow? There is such a verse. Yes, it's a couple of verses earlier. It's in Vayikra chapter 10, verse number six. After the death of Nadav and Abiyah, Vayom Moshe el Aaron, who el Azar uitamar banav, Rashechem al Tifra'u, uvigdechem lo Tifra'u v'lo Tamutu, Yaakov ha'ido yiktsov. This is after the death of Nadav and Abihu, Aaron's two sons. He had two remaining sons. God spoke to Aaron, to Elazar and Itamar, the remaining sons. Do not, it's the same word we have. If your hair, let it not grow wild. And don't tear your garments. It sounds like don't mourn. The mourner does not cut her hair, his hair, right? So here, here the priests are told specifically, don't let your hair grow wild. So this is actually very interesting. We have the three prohibitions of the Nazarite, which are not, which are to not to cut your hair, which are to not drink wine, and which are to not come in contact with the dead. In the case of the Kohen, we have all three mentioned actually, but not identical. In the case of not coming in contact with the dead, that's identical to the high priest. In the case of the wine, okay, it's limited in the case of the priests to when they, when they enter into the temple. But it could be possible that the high priest of the Torah never leaves the temple, in which case it would apply to Aaron, the high priest, all the time, the same as it applied to the Nazir. But when it comes to the hair, they're exactly the opposite, that the Nazarite must let hair grow and the priest, it would appear, solely under certain circumstances and perhaps beyond, is not permitted. The Talmud understands that the priest gets a haircut, was it every, every week or something like that? I mean, maybe even more frequently. Not to let the hair grow. So this is something that we, I think is good, something to think about now in terms of the, the priest and the Nazarite, the high priest and the Nazarite. And it's interesting, by the way, the Torah said about the Nazarite that all the days of the Nazarite, Kadosh Hashem, he's holy unto God, he's Kadosh. But the high priest is also called Kadosh, right? And in fact, the word Nazar appears twice in the Torah. It appears in Nezer the context Hashem of the Nazir, Right, and it appears in terms of the high priest. The high priest, on top of the high priest's head, the high priest, there are eight garments that the high priest wears. The regular priest wears four garments. But the high priest, the special, most special garment of the high priest is called the tzitz. 
Tzitz Nezer HaKodesh. And on the Tzitz are written two words, Kodesh Rashem, holy unto God. So the high priest is called holy unto God, and the Nazarite is holy unto God, but the high priest is cuts, cuts his hair, and the Nazarite does not cut his hair. So that is actually something, I wanted to focus on that for a moment, of the difference between the high priest and the, and, and the Nazarite. They seem, seem to have a similar status of being holy, but they seem to be quite different in respect to the hair. So what do we make of that? Does anybody have any thoughts about that? I have a thought. Um, does anybody have a thought about the significance of the hair? For the Nazarite, obviously, when we think about a Nazarite, probably we're thinking about Shimshon. What we think about is that Shimshon never, never cuts his hair. When his hair gets cut, he gets in trouble, but Shimshon is forbidden to cut his hair. Um, but the high priest does cut his hair and the Talmud takes it all the time. It's constantly getting haircuts. Um, so what is the difference between the high priest then and the Nazarite? I can think of two big differences. So two main differences. Yes? So one, one, one view I might say is that the high priest is serving God and representing the people and at least from the viewpoint of the Talmud, he has to be uh, presentable and decorated. And the haircut is part, part of that view be that because of his service and his role, and there are lots of other requirements of the pre in terms of physical appearance and so on. And whereas the Nazir is in a way doing this for himself and he's, he's, he's separating himself from the community and not serving it. So his hair is parua, uh, is right. wild, and it, it, it represents two different, both of them represent some kind of kedusha, which is a, a separation, a, a distancing, but they're in different directions. Right, I think that's very well said, actually. I think that's a very important point. As you say, the high priest is in service of God, yes, but in service of the people. In fact, the Talmud has a very interesting question did the Talmud speaks about this question. When these priests are serving in the temple, are they God's emissaries or are they people's emissaries? And that formulation is very striking. And yes, it's not just getting a haircut, but the, but the big day kahuna of all the priests, the Torah says they are with kavod uutiferet, for dignity and for, and for majesty. The idea of beauty is something that is connected very much to, to the Mishkan as well. The nausea, the idea of the unkempt hair. And interesting, by the way, in the previous chapter of the Torah, when it comes to the sota, a part of the, the ritual of the sota, the Torah says that the Kohen should, should he should make her hair unkempt. So the idea of being unkempt has to do with being sort of separate from. Uh, and even we understand this from even our own perspective, probably, you know, in our times, you know, the beatniks, the hippies, they let their hair grow a certain way. That was a sign that they are, see themselves in a certain sense as countercultural or whatever. So the, and I would add another detail, which is related to this, that in terms of the Kohen Gadol, the Torah says earlier about the Kohen HaGadol, Asher Yimshach, Ar-Rosho, 
Hagadol Meyachav Asheim Shach Arosho Shem and Amishcha. The high priest who created and his brethren, upon whose head was poured the anointing oil. So the Torah speaks of the high priest becoming a high priest because on his head is the anointing oil. But the, the, the Nazir has made his own head holy. There's no anointing oil poured on the head of the Nazir. He declared himself holy. There's a very critical difference between the two of them. The Nazir is someone who says, I'm going to be the high priest. The high priest is one who either through, like, through God's intervention or the other priests has been appointed or and anointed as the high priest. So this is actually, so the, the, the parallel in a certain way, they're both holy, but they arrive at this holiness in a very different way. And I would add, given the introduction, the very fact of separation. This is what the Nazir, the word Nazir may mean separation actually. The word Nazir may have two meanings. One is the Hazir is to separate, but a Nazir is a crown. So there are two separate words that, two separate definitions of the Nazir. On one hand, the crown, like the high priest. On the other hand, the act of separation, but separating oneself from the community in general is problematic and even more problematic in a, in a, set, in a set of chapters where the emphasis is on being in a very specific place and being part of a larger tribe and a larger community. Um, okay. Uh, I seem to have lost the picture over here. Um, I can go back to Oh, I know. I'm good now. I'm good now. Okay. okay. Let me stop for a moment. Are there any questions or comments at this point? Yeah. I wanted to say something. Um, yeah. I have another thought. Um, I also think that if you look at the, uh, the place of hair, um, when Yosef fiddles with his hair or Avshalom with his hair, it's a very negative. And perhaps the Nazir, the idea of letting it go wild, um, although I always have a question, if it's only for a month, I mean, how wild is it going to get? You know, I, I don't quite get that well, connection. The month, is, the month of the Mishnah is the, we'll get to the Mishnah. The Mishnah is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gold mine, the Mishnah, but the Mishnah presumes, and I don't want to jump into the Mishnah. Uh, I want to comment, just respond to what you're saying. Um, the Mishnah has a rule that the, 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 you can't accept a Nazarite vow less than 30 days. You right. can say I want to be a Nazarite for two days, but in the Mishnah, it doesn't matter. It's automatically minimally 30. Now, the Mishnah does know of people that take it for a longer time, and the Mishnah does know of people that are in Nazarite their entire lives. But we'll get to those things later. Now, as far as the two people you mentioned, that's very interesting. We'll deal with them. Yosef is called a Nazir, actually, twice in the Torah. It's actually called a Nazir. Um, and yes, the Medrash, it's not in the text, but the idea of him playing with his hair, that's a Midrashic creation, but it's a way of saying he's self-involved or, or, or you know, uh, preening or whatever it is. And that is taken to be a negative. Uh, and I'll get back to that. Avshalom, has long hair, he ends up getting caught with his hair and dying. And there's no evidence in the book of Samuel that he's a Nazir in any manner, shape or form, but the Mishnah claims he's a Nazir. Not only is he a Nazir in the Mishnah, but remarkably, he's the prototypical Nazir, not, not Samson. In the Mishnah, actually, remarkably, Avshalom is much more of the prototypical Nazir than Samson, whom they see as completely different. That's another move, interesting move of the Mishnah, but that's when we get to the Mishnah. But in terms of the biblical text, 
we will deal, we'll deal with Joseph, obviously. Samson is the obvious Nazir. And Avshalom is not a Nazir, but he has long hair, which ends up, you know, causing his demise. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's true, my, I think. My, yeah. my point was that here are people who um, were self-involved and um, I, I felt that the Torah was trying to say, um, if you want to focus, you need to not be self-involved and not um, pride yourself on your hair and let it go loose and unkempt. And um, that's the point of it. Like there are two examples of what could happen if you go the other way. And therefore the Torah is commanding you to go this way. That was my point. Mm-hmm. That could be, but the, the word para, though, is certainly a negative word. A negative, There's no question right. about that. Arua, para. And he's commanded to... Yishmael, para. Right. Yeah. Para is a negative word. I'm wondering if paro plays off the word para, too. And, and, and the fact is that it's um, paruahu, etc., with the golden calf. Moshe comes down the mountain, he sees the people, he paruahu. Now, uh, is there, you know, we, uh, can't, we can't deal with everything, but we, 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 we maybe mention that. Um, Isn't Yishmael, Yishmael is also described with that word. Para, no, that's with an olive. Oh. Okay. Maybe it's related. That's Peresh Olive, Pera Adam. But, but, but the point is, but your point is well taken. That is, that there is a big dis- dispute within the Talmud and within the commentaries on the, on, the, on, the, on the Torah, Rashi and the Ramban, have a big dispute about the Nazir in general. Is it fundamentally a good thing? Or, or is it something institution that is, you know, it has, it's a mixed, mixed message. It's possibly good, but it's often not good. There are statements in the, we'll see this, the Rambam talks about this, the contradictions in the Rambam between the, between the guide on the one hand, between the Shemona Prakim on the other, two statements in the Rambam and the Mishnah Torah. There's a huge dispute in our tradition about the Nazir. And part of it is exactly your point and, and my point, which is A, well, basically separation from the community, not willing to serve God where, you, where, where, where you're stationed. And this idea of, I'll, I'll be the high priest. Give me the high priest. You know, you're, you're a schlepper from this woman. We're the high priest. So the point is, that is part of the entire discussion. And I would say in the Chumash, the very fact that in the Torah is limited in time, so we suggest, I think, that the Torah sees in the Nazir something positive, but not something that is actually permanent. It is for the Chumash a kind of impermanent uh, situation. So this plays into the larger questions of, of, the, of the Nazir, the take on the Nazir, et cetera. Uh, before I take any more comments, I wanna make one comment now, which is I think very important comment about the Nazir, which is this. And we again, we'll get to the mission. The mission I think has its own take, but the fact of the matter is what I would say is the following, then I'll, Stop and take questions. How much time do I have, by the way? What time is it now? There's no um, watch here. Just over 15 minutes. 15, okay. Let me make a simple point that I'll stop and take comments and questions. Uh, and that is, the question is, what is the Nazir doing? In other words, there's two ways to read the Torah. One way is to say the following. Somebody wakes up one morning and says, you know, I want to, I want to accept, let's put it this way. I want to accept additional restrictions upon myself. One could say, I want to accept additional mitzvot. I want to be a Nazir. And one way to understand it is, you want to be a Nazir. That is to say, it's shorthand for, I'm not going to drink wine. I'm not going to come in contact with any dead. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to uh, uh, cut my hair. 
I wanted to accept these three additional restrictions on myself. I want to go beyond the 613, 616 mitzvah or whatever. So that's one way to see the Nazir. That's one way to read it. Then there's another way to read it. That is to say, when the person says, I want to be a Nazir, ki kadoshu Hashem, I want to be a holy person. I want to be, I want to, I want not 613, 615, 616, forget the number. It's not about that. I want to be a person called the Nazir. And what the Torah says is, well, if you want to be a person called the Nazir, that comes with certain restrictions. But the restrictions are not a definition of what it means to be a Nazir. The Torah doesn't say what it means. It's outside of saying holy unto God, it's like, for example, comparing it to the high priest. If someone asks you, what is the high priest doing? Okay, what does it mean to be a high priest? Nobody would say, oh, a high priest. It means that you can't come in contact with the dead and you can't drink wine while you work and you gotta take a haircut. I mean, no rational person would ever even think in those terms. You would answer something like, high priest is in service of the people. The high priest is uh, entering on Yom Kippur. The high priest, uh, whatever, high priest sees, is, is part of seeing the, the, the various, uh, you know, the ga'im, the, maybe the high priest is one who mediates between God and the people. But no rational person would say, well, high priest, oh, high priest is one who doesn't come in contact with the dead. That wouldn't be the definition of a high priest. That's attended upon being a high priest. And the same thing I submit in terms of the Torah, the Torah never dreamt in a million years, in my view, that to be an azir means to have these restrictions. They, you do have the restrictions, but they come with the territory. The verse in Amos, that's the half Torah for the story of Joseph. God complains, I, I set up some of you people to be prophets and some to be Nazarites. And you have, and you, and you didn't, you told the prophets not to prophesy and you gave the Nazarites wine. The verse in Amos, as the Rambam cites, it compares the Nazarite to the, to, to the prophet. I don't know what restrictions a prophet may or may not have, but if he, even if the prophet had additional restrictions, nobody would ever claim that's what it means to be a prophet. So the point is that the Nazarite is not someone, the question is, what does the Nazarite do? Now, the Mishnah, I believe, goes out of its way to say the Nazarite does nothing. I, I believe the Mishnah is actually, which is a very conservative document, is uncomfortable with the Nazarite. That's the claim I want to, uh, when we get to the Mishnah. But in the Chumash, I don't think that's the case. Now, it is true that the Chumash never says what the Nazarite does do. And I would make a, there's an interesting parallel to that in the Torah, not in the book of Bamidbar, but in the book of Devarim. The Torah says, when you come into the land and you say, the king, the king. I want to have a king, says the Torah, place upon yourself a king, but make sure it's one that God chooses and make sure that it's one of the people and not too many wives and not too much money and not too many horses and don't bring them down to Egypt and have a Torah and read it all the time. So you don't deviate from that and you don't become too horny. But what the Torah never says is, what does the king do? The Torah never says what a king does. Maybe the biblical text presumes we know what a king does, but it doesn't say it. And in point of fact, the first time we have a definition of what is the job is in the book of Shmuel. The people go to Shmuel and say, we want a king to judge us and to fight our wars. Ah, that's what a king does. King fights wars, commander in chief of the army, and a king is some kind of a judge. And then for the first time, we found out 
what the king actually does. We know what a king should not do. You know, there's a mitzvah to write the Torah and to read it, but what is the job? So the parallel to the king is very striking. And to me, I would say it's, it's obvious that the Nazarite is not just about the restrictions, that the Nazarite is a Nazarite, whatever that means, we'll talk about that, but it comes with certain restrictions and the restrictions are significant because they give us an insight perhaps into what the Nazarite is about. That's what I wanted to say uh, now. So we're gonna be stop here and take comments or questions. Chaim, you had something you wanted to say? Uh, I was wondering if there's any connection between the tar, the knife, and that a knife should not be used to make a mizbeach. Um, the whole uh, concept of uh, of staying away from something that takes away life, um, uh, even though it, it, in, it, in a complicated form, you use the knife to create the korban. On the other hand, uh, you can't right. have a sword or knife making. Yeah, well, the word actually, the word tar is not a word that's found in conjunction with the Mishkan. Um, there we have the word cherev, actually, which is cherev is clearly an instrument of war. Was I'm not sure that tar is actually an instrument of war. But since you did raise that comment, that question, I would simply point out, and we'll get to this later, that if we think of the primary nausea, okay, uh, whatever you think about Samson's behavior, let's put it this way. He's not a guy who stays away from wars. I mean, that's what he does, basically, is kill people. So, I mean, it is rather, now, presumably, as the Talmud notes, and I think it's obvious, he's also not staying, not, he is coming in contact with the dead, I presume, since he's killing hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of people. So, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that point later about what the Nazir does. There is a view which I have not read, come across, but I, I'm, a, I'm aware of the view that the Nazarites were actually warriors. There is such a view, and I wanted to, I haven't, I've heard it. I haven't really read anyone who, who has a lengthy examination of that. I'm not, I, I would have to be convinced. I'm not convinced, but uh, there's no sense, I think, in the Bible that the Nazarite, he does, Yes, he doesn't come in contact with the dead. So you're right about that. If he were killing people, he'd be in contact with the dead. Uh, it's possible. On the other hand, the Nazarites that we know of, Samson certainly, and there's another one who possibly also we'll see about him. Extremely interesting. Um, so he he's at least a witness to war, if not actually in the war itself. That's a very interesting point, and we'll, we'll get to that later because it's something that's discussed. Uh, I have to just find who talks about it. So I've, I've heard it. I haven't actually seen anything inside about the relationship of the Nazarite to war. But you're right, in the Fumish, he doesn't come into contact with the dead, not even his own parents. So presumably he's not fighting a war. Because if you're fighting a war, there's a strong chance you come into contact with, with, with the dead. Um, yeah, is there anybody else who wants to have something to say here? Yeah, I, I guess I'm wondering about um, the fact that the Nazir kind of, you know, does this speech act and says that you know, he or she is kind of going to be dedicated to God for this certain period of time. And the only, I mean, obviously, you know, this wouldn't work for people, but, um, you know, the only part of the Nazir that, I guess, grows during that time and is ex is expendable is the Nazir's hair. Um, in that way, I, I don't know, I think there's this kind of 
connection that I see between that and like hectic and but also right. the kind of like unkemptness of the hair um means that you know the nazir during that time is not deriving benefit from the hair you know if it's not grooming it um you know isn't kind of indulging in that vanity while they have the hair um right so you, actually you made two points i'll address the main point briefly we'll come back to these things it's very central but you made another point in passing which is a very important point actually you said it in two words but actually it's a critical point and for the talmud it's a really critical point again our focus will be on the bible after this, these sessions let me point out that the nazir's hair is very striking because the torah describes at some length the, the, the procedure upon completing the Nazarite vow. And you bring the Nazarite who completes, we'll deal with this uh, inside, we'll see. The Nazarite upon completion of the vow brings three sacrifices and then takes a haircut. Three sacrifices, the Torah details the sacrifices, we will discuss that. But there's a very in interesting feature of the sacrifices. So the third sacrifice is a shlamim, peace offering or whatever well-being offering, whatever you translate it. And then it says the Nazarite cuts his hair, having brought the sacrifice, and puts the hair under the fire of the, of the, of the, of the offering. You, you actually burn the hair, or one might say you, you dedicate your hair. So the hair actually is part of the carbon. That's very striking, right? Consecrates his hair. And it's actually, yeah, that's the verse. Verse number 18, you got it right there. Takes the hair, rocks of Kazan, and places it on the fire under the sacrifice of the Shramim, the well being sacrifice. So that's an interesting point. We get to the sacrifices. We'll spend probably one more week on this, on chapter six. Then we'll jump off to Samson, Joseph, and Yonadav ben Rechav, maybe Avshalom, and there's Samuel, who doesn't cut his hair, the prophet Samuel. Those are the five. So we only have uh, five or six more weeks. But in any event, but you made another comment, which you just said in passing, which for the Gemara is a very, 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 very important point. You just said in passing. And that is that the Nazir becomes a Nazir by means of a vow. It's a neder. Those doing the Dafyomi, so there are people doing the Dafyomi, the previous tractate was Masechet Nedarim, the tractate of vows. And right after tractate Nedarim, you have tractate Nazir, which the, the first Mishnayot of Nazir are virtually identical to the Mishnayot in, say, in, in, the, in, in the tractate Nadarim. So this is not a small detail. The Naz, you become a Nazir through a Neder. It's called, the Torah calls it Neder Nazir. That's something we have to think about in terms of understanding the Nazir. It's not just I'm a Nazir. You took a vow to be a Nazir. Nazir Rashem, you vow, you vow, when I say this big, this kind of commitment that you make, and a neder often carries with it, in the Torah at least, the rabbis had a different view of neder, but the biblical neder is actually hektish. So there's something about, you can offer a sacrifice to God, but one way to read the Nazarite uh, story is that the Nazir is offering a sacrifice to God. It is herself or himself that's being offered to God. And at the end of it, a piece of you, Yes, an expendable piece, it's the hair, but a piece of you to conclude the Nazarite vow is part of the sacrificial offering. So that's a very important point. You can't underestimate that. Two points. Uh, number one, the first point you made 
which is that it's a it, it's actually a neder. Neder it's called neder nazir. That's point number one. Point number two. That one way to understand the Nazarite. This is the question: What is a Nazarite? Is it just a is it just shorthand for a complex of, of kind of obligations? It's a shorthand for I'm not going to cut my hair, I'm not going to drink wine, I'm not going to come in contact with the dead. So you have to say all three. I'm going to be a Nazir. And that means those three things. That's one way to read it. Or does it mean something very different? Nazir means I am, I am offering something to God. It's an offering to God. Yes, it is reflected in various prohibitions, but it's not about the prohibitions. The prohibitions are reflective of what it means to be a Nazir, or maybe they are defining, setting sort of setting a definition or setting the playing field for the Nazir, but they're not what the Nazir is. The Nazir is actually neder in biblical Hebrew in the Bible, is, is not what the Talmud says a neder is, which is you prohibit certain things. If I'm not going to eat apples. I take a neder, these apples are forbidden to me. That's the, that's the Talmudic neder. But in the Torah, that every neder is actually hegdish. I'm giving something to God. So one way to understand the Nazir is a kind of hegdish. Um, okay, so just to sum up what we have so far, we began the study of Nazir in the Torah, and we began with the sixth chapter mm -hmm. dedicated Before to the Nazir. Up, yes. Um, I think Aviva has uh, Okay, let's hear. Yes, go ahead. I'm wondering, and, and this is the first time I've ever heard of the Nazir, so this is, comes from ignorance. <laughs> Okay. But I'm wondering if the relationship between, I don't mean the relationship between them, but the fact that the Bible has the high priest and the priest, the Kohanim, and the Nazir, is if it's a, a kind of complex, two-pronged way of um, reaching and, and incorporating holiness. So the priest has, and we know it's like organized religion. A rabbi who might, a rabbi of a synagogue might study, might study and might start, but but then there's politics and there's organization and there's all these other obligations that could take you away from the pure holiness. And the nazir, it's like the individual who connects to the essence of the holiness. And is that, am I correct, that they that you need both? Well, let's put it this way. There certainly are within the Bible in general, many different paths to holiness. First of all, there's, apart from the priest, there are other kinds of leaders. I mean, Moshe is not a priest. He's a different kind of leader. Aaron is a totally different kind of leader. Uh, you know, they're all different. I mean, there is no one path, clearly. Um, the question is, the Nazir is interesting because it does involve separation from the community. When we get to the Samson story, Samson is, I mean, an extreme. It's always good to study the extremes. It, one might say in no sense is, in the, I'm talking the biblical account. When you read the story of Samson, you say to yourself, is this guy Jewish altogether? Forget, he doesn't live amongst the Jews. He doesn't marry Jews. He hasn't, he's not part of the Jewish people. And on top of that, at one point, they actually Jews try to hand him over to be killed. So again, that's an extreme story, but you know, study of the extremes uh, is, is very valuable. So I certainly would say that there's more than one path to holiness. The question is this particular path, which is very different uh, and one that within our tradition, there's a, gets sort of a mixed review. 
And I guess part of our task is to read the stories of different, you know, and try to come to a deep understanding of what does this actually mean to be a Nazir? Uh, the fact that the Torah limits it in, in general says, I think that at least from the account in the book of Babidbar, that the Torah sees this as possibly a good thing, but on the other hand, uh, has a problematic side to it, which is how I began. Uh, there are others, depending on about whom you speak, I'll mention this next week, there's Rashi and the Ramban, two great medieval exegetes who have radically different views about the Nazir. Rashi has, Rashi cites Talmudic sources that raise questions about it. And the Ramban thinks it's the greatest thing ever, I mean, to be a Nazir. So we'll, we'll talk about this next, uh, next time. Excuse me. Yes. My point was not about the importance, but that maybe because the Bamidbar is when they're creating this people and they're creating a structure of the people and that maybe they need both. That's all I'm saying. Not that right. not that it's great or bad, but that you need the institutional Kohen and you need the mad individual who who kind of connects in a different way. Well, right. I mean, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that view. But my quite, I guess the question would be, is the Torah saying that you need it? Or is, uh -huh. it, or is the Rashi saying, or is the Torah saying that it is permissible to do it? Uh -huh. But that we don't necessarily need it. That's that's the dispute. Everybody agrees that the, the Torah says you can have a nausea. Mm -hmm. Question is, do the Torah say it in a half half-hearted way? You can do it, but just keep it temporary. There's a value to it, but not permanent. Uh, mm -hmm. Or is the Torah endorsing it? That's the Ramban. The Torah endorses it. The Torah doesn't want you to stop, but if, you can stop. But it's not. So that's we'll get to that question next week. I I, I hear the question. It's a good one. Uh, Okay, I guess I'll stop at this point. So next week we'll continue. Uh, I just want to mention that we have another series of on Parshat Shavua. It just so happens that tonight I'm giving it. I'm giving it about seven or eight. But if I'm giving, I think one or two. I'm giving one tonight. Uh, for those interested, in it, I think it's at uh, twelve thirty your time, uh, Eastern Standard Time. Um, okay, very good. It's good to get started again, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, should be very interesting. Interesting topic, anyway. Can I Thank ask you, you one much. quick question? Yeah, go ahead, sure. The, the Sunday class used to be at 10 in the morning. Yes, it still is. But on the Zoom link, it says one. Does? That's a mistake. That was a mistake, and they should let us all know that. Yeah. Yes, that's why I'm, at, that's why I'm bringing it up. No, that's a, there's a different class at one, not my class. My class is at 10. No, there was a mistake, and and I found out because I asked. But but I think okay, I'll, I'll, they I'll should let all right of away. us know. Yeah, I'll check yeah. into it right away. That's a bad mistake. If that's the case. Yeah. Okay. It's Ten o'clock. Okay. okay. Thank then. you. Okay. Thank okay, you. Then. Thank you all. Uh, thank thank you. you so much for uh, getting this uh, series of classes started, Rabbi Silver. And um, of course, you know, as everyone's discussing, we have uh, a bunch of other classes going on this month. Um, we have a couple starting today, and you can check those all out at um, 5783.drisha.org. Um, and I hope to see you uh, at some of those, you know, or until next week. Um, yeah. Have a good Thank evening you. or a good day. <laughs>